Welcome everyone to Health or Consequences, a podcast produced and sponsored by Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. My name is John McDonough. I'm with the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston, and my co-host and partner is uh, Dr. Paul Haddis, recently retired from the Tufts School of Medicine. So congratulations, Paul, for that, and thanks for being with us today. We are delighted and thrilled to have today with us uh, Representative Christine Barber, who is the state representative for the 34th Middlesex District, and she's based in Somerville. Thanks for joining us today, Christine. It's a real thrill to have you. Uh, every time it seems like there's someone in the House who stands out in terms of health policy, in terms of their attention, their study, their involvement, and I think a lot of people look to you as one of the real bright lights in terms of crafting sound, good, progressive health policy. So congratulations and thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to, to join you and I'm glad that this, that this worked out. So you're, you're near the end of your third term, running for reelection as we speak, and you've also found yourself on three key legislative committees, vice chair of financial services, member of House Ways and Means, and also a member of the Healthcare Finance Committee. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, how you got to the legislature, and how you ended up working your way up to such an important and influential role in these key committees and in the House generally? Um, sure, I appreciate that uh, characterization, um, but I, um, was I have worked on especially healthcare for a long time, um, and am a you know lifelong progressive activist. So I was a staffer at the state house um, back in '04 and '05, and was lucky enough to be on the team that worked on the mass health reform legislation and worked with John during that time um, in his previous work at Healthcare for All. And um, being a part of that landmark bill and being a part of that policy process was incredibly um, in, you know, informing of my career because I got to work with advocates and every, um, everyone who worked on healthcare to talk to them about that bill. And we, we're able to work together with people on the outside to really craft something that was groundbreaking. Um, and it was also a way of seeing that, you know, policy is really messy and really complicated, but can do, do some real good. And I always take that with me when, when things get hard. Um, but, and I became a healthcare advocate after that and worked for a number of years at Community Catalyst and working on the Affordable Care Act and some other health policies but the whole time I was really connected to grassroots organizing in Somerville and um, decided um, to run for office to really take that kind of public health lens that I have and um, really work on community issues um, with that health lens. So things like the social determinants of health that we talk about, about you know, how the environment and jobs and education and so much of our uh, world really impacts our health. And that's what I love doing at the State House. And as far as um, 
you know, my work at the State House, I see it all about relationships and organizing, how I see most of my work um, in the community as well. But in the State House, it's when you're one of 160 reps, you have to work together or you can't get anything done. So it's something I think you know well as well, John. And um, so I've really um, taken that to heart, that it's not just about being a policy expert and working with people on the outside, but also having good relationships and communicating with each other to get, to get progressive things passed. Rep Barber, let me add my words of welcome to you to join us today. We're sitting here in mid-August, five months into the COVID-19 pandemic. And from your vantage point, how would you say the Baker administration and or the legislature, how are they each doing in terms of uh, dealing with the challenges confronting uh, the Commonwealth? Um, I think that they're do that the Baker administration is doing okay, but there are some opportunities for improvement. Um, so I was one of the people who was advocating for closing down the economy earlier than we did as a state. Um, and I think that 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 could have had some more impact. Um, there have been, of course, a lot of really good things that the governor has done to address the crisis that's in front of us, particularly without federal leadership. Um, and I'm especially glad to see the focus really on the hardest hit communities lately um, and looking at communities that um, have been disproportionately hit. We know not everyone is suffering from COVID uh, equally, and it's really exposed the inequality that already existed in our society, and we're seeing that play out with this illness. Um, about the legislature, the, the legislature and its role so far today. Yeah, and I think, so one of the things that I was involved in that I'm proud that we did quickly was passing the eviction moratorium to keep people in their homes. It's a critical, basic need for people right now. Um, and we have been able to pass a number of funding bills to try to increase funding for hospitals, funding for rental assistance. Um, there is more that we can, that needs to be done, I think, on um, protecting essential workers and making sure um, that things I support, like sick, paid sick time and some other um, supports for them. But there are also things like we passed a data bill back in, I believe, June about collecting more data at the state level and the governor hasn't fully implemented that law. So it is challenging for us to be able to really track, especially when there's a big push to send kids back to school right now. How can we track? Where are the outbreaks? Where, do, where are the hot spots? Where are the next places that we need to be looking at um, as we're doing this? I think we need a lot more testing in all of our communities and going back to contact tracing because that's really the only way we could actually safely send kids back and be you know, continuing to reopen. It seems that there are significantly different points of view when it comes to healthcare policy between the governor's office and the Senate and the House. Uh, we saw two years ago uh, the inability to uh, come together to pass a big reform law dealing with uh, payment discrepancies among hospitals and other kinds of things. Um, what, what are the things that have been achieved over the past few years in healthcare policy uh, that you think are particularly important, have been unappreciated or unrecognized? Yeah, I don't think it's always true that there are that many differences between um, 
between the branches and where we are. Um, and one thing that's certain is that COVID have brought us all together. I mean, the COVID um, pandemic has really um, helped, I think, focus um, the um, focus us all on the healthcare needs of our communities, which is always something that I like to, to see. There's been so much more interest in public health and in looking at how does, um, how does the environment that we live in shape our public health. Um, so things like supporting hospitals and getting them greater funding right away um, were things that were easy for us to come together and to support um, the governor on. And the telehealth bill that we passed in the House a few weeks ago um, and that followed what the Senate had passed is um, something that's been incredibly helpful during the pandemic. Um, I know I've used telehealth. I am constantly hearing from constituents who say this has been incredibly help helpful to us, especially for mental health access and the enormous need that we have right now. Um, so I think coming together to respond on telehealth has been a place where we can um, come together. And there is more, we know there's more to do on funding for community hospitals, funding for community health centers. These are bigger issues that we've, we've addressed emergency funding for the pandemic that was absolutely necessary. And there's more work to do to figure out the more uh, structural changes that are needed to keep those um, as as we're as we're talking right now, the telehealth bill is still in a conference committee. Um, do you have a sense of if it's coming out shortly, or do you know what the hangups are in terms of it at this point? I do not. Mm -hmm. I'm not on okay. the conference committee, and I I do not. Okay, Paul. Uh, let's dive into a specific issue. I know that you have some interest in the prescription drug issue. You know, the Senate last fall passed its own bill, which deals with things like capping insulin prices or getting consumers the best price at the pharmacy counter and puts the HPC potentially into the mix to review some pricing on drugs. And that passed the Senate, but the House and its leadership so far haven't seemed, at least to me, all that interested in doing anything legislatively in this area. I know, though, for you and your own constituents, you, you do care about this issue. So your thoughts about where we are right now with prescription drug affordability in our state? Um, yeah, it's an incredibly important issue and one that uh, it impacts the affordability of healthcare for thousands and thousands of people. And we know this has been an issue before COVID, but like most issues, COVID has changed everything. So the most important thing right now is making sure that people are able to afford their COVID treatment and if and when there is hopefully a vaccine that people can afford to get that treatment and that vaccine. Um, so that's really, I think, the most critical piece that we're looking at right now. Um, we have in the House, we did pass in the budget last year, a provision to allow Medicaid, MassHealth can now negotiate with drug companies. And so that is something that passed the House and the Senate and um, the administration has been doing that. And it has saved over 18 million uh, nets so in Medicaid, in Medicaid spending so far. Medicaid spending. So that means twice that, at least, in total spending, and half of it goes to the federal government. But that has been um, a way to bring down costs for healthcare, and that's something that 
we were able to do um, last Are you at all hopeful that between now and the extended legislative session to the fall that anything will come through in this area additionally or, or your thought about that? Yeah, so I filed um, and I filed a bill at the beginning of the session, but with COVID, we've redrafted it with the coalition that I work with. Um, and the way we're looking at it now is really looking at the chronic diseases that have COVID complications. So there's so many um, illnesses from cardiovascular, um, diabetes, other diseases that um, you're much more susceptible to um, COVID, but also uh, worse outcomes from COVID. And we want to make sure that um, those drugs are affordable and that people are able to get their inhalers and their insulin um, without worrying about the price of drugs. I um, am continuing to look for opportunities to push that forward. There is, um, it, it's really critical right now that we're looking at especially the most vulnerable populations and making sure that they're able to access drugs and afford the drugs that are out, that are there. Let me, let me turn to another issue, which I know interests you and in, in, in I've heard that you think it's a particular concern during the pandemic. And it's uh, known as the Medicaid estate recovery issue, which is, if I understand it, it's really about when people have been on Medicaid and ultimately, let's say, pass away since the state expended dollars for them, there's often sometimes an effort to actually collect some of that monies back when there's like a home potentially that 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 could be sold to to you know to reimburse. Uh, explain the issue a little bit, and then where your particular area of concern is, if you would. Yeah, so there was actually a really good article in Atlantic um, a month ago, maybe about estate recovery, um, and the story is unfortunately one that we hear often, which was about um, an adult child who was taking care of her parents um, who um, were getting home care through Medicaid. And after her um, one parent passed away, the state tried to recoup basically the house, their only real asset. This is a, a um, lower income family. Their only asset was this house that the family had owned for a long time and the spouse and the, the adult child were still living in that house. Um, and this is a, there is a, um, a federal rule that, um, that does um, encourage states to, to actually go after people who are on Medicaid and try to recoup the costs of that long-term care. Um, but Massachusetts actually goes farther than the federal rule and, um, and collects money from any MassHealth recipient over 55, even if they weren't in a nursing home, even if they're getting care at home, um, which is much less expensive. So MassHealth has some of the, um, I would say, strongest and um, most draconian estate recovery um, rules in the country. And this is something, especially with COVID, it is incredibly hard to um, find a lawyer, go to court, go through the paperwork um, that, that a person needs to actually um, address the estate recovery issues. So I filed a bill with Senator Comerford um, to address this issue, at least through COVID, um, to expand um, the amount of time that a person can respond to claims and waive the interest for claims and start to address this, this issue. Um, because it is one that is really addressing um, 
any kind of development of wealth for low-income people. And we don't typically think of healthcare and Medicaid as something that's a loan that your family is going to pay back. Um, and that is really what's happening here. So um, it's something that we're continuing to, to work on. And I think that we can make some progress, um, at least to give people relief through this pandemic. Okay, thank you. What's, is there progress with the legislation at this point? Where's, where, what's the status of it at this point, do you know? Medicaid estate recovery, we had yeah. a hearing. We did have a hearing, it is still in committee. Um, it was something that we filed recently during the COVID pandemic. Um, but we've also had promising conversations with the administration and there is some interest in, in changing this policy. Um, so I'm hopeful that there are some things the Baker administration could do administratively. So I'm hopeful that we can make some changes, um, you know, soon in the next, in the next couple of weeks. Great. Thank you. So could we switch to mental health and primary care? Late last year, Governor Baker and uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mary Lou Sutters introduced legislation to greatly expand mental health and primary care services along with other changes. Uh, the Senate passed its own mental health legislation earlier this year. Um, is there any movement on the House side on this issue that you can tell us about in terms of where this issue is at and what happened to the uh, ideas that were advanced by Governor Baker last year? Yeah, Governor Baker proposed um, uh, increasing the mental health and primary care and that um, at that hearing, a number of us pressed him to what exactly that meant and how exactly that could be um, implemented at the state level. And I think there, there are some good ideas there, but a lot more to do to figure out how to, to get there. Um, and of course, with the pandemic, there was a shifting in um, what we were able to prioritize this session. I do think the telehealth bill that we passed, um, and it is in conference committee, but both the House and Senate had um, fairly similar um, provisions on this. But the telehealth bill has really, um, telehealth has been incredibly helpful to behavioral health access. Um, people who may have more limited provider networks or ability to get to appointments um, have a much easier time doing telehealth. And we were able to keep the payments for providers at a level of parity. So it's helping um, people to, to be able to provide those services. We of course have really great behavioral health providers in Massachusetts. It's often an, an issue of making sure they're paid, paid enough and on an insurer's network. Um, so I'm proud that we were able to do that um, and the work of, of Rep Decker and the mental health committee and trying to make sure behavioral health is, is in there. Um, we did also pass last year, but in this session, um, uh, one of my bills, which was about provider directories, and that does get to the issue of we have great behavioral health providers. Often the insurance companies do not update their networks and they don't actually have them as part of their networks. So we worked, I worked with the Children's Mental Health Campaign who had found that trying to find behavioral health for kids is incredibly frustrating and challenging and parents will just call through everyone on their insurance provider list and find that um, people aren't practicing anymore, they've moved, they've, um, they haven't been see seeing new patients. 
and the issue is actually called ghost networks because sometimes the providers have passed away, but they're still on the provider list. Um, so we were we passed a law um, to make sure that insurers are updating those lists regularly, and that's a way to actually get therapists and behavioral health providers who want to see patients and who are trying to get coverage, get them on those lists and, and improve the networks and get kids the care that they need. So let me pull the lens out to even a, a larger level for a moment and ask you about some national healthcare issues in particular, as, as you said about your own background, somebody with a, a progressive views on healthcare that's included some discussion of Medicare for all. We're in the COVID era now in some ways, uh, the uninsurance and the affordability challenge has grown even during the pandemic. And um, advocates uh, are saying that maybe, you know, this is another time to examine that nationally, but also state level, although we've been so far unsuccessful in our own state to get even the state version of, of Medicare for all. Uh, your thoughts about the concept of it now, either nationally or at the state level, what's your thinking? Yeah, I'm a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bill here at the state level, um, and it is something that is incredibly challenging without a federal partner. So, um, as your listeners probably know, healthcare is at least half funded by the federal government, and the federal government's a really important partner, and we do not have a partner at the federal level um, on this issue right now. Um, I... I know that this has been um, a, an issue that we've talked about for many years, but I actually, and it's something that I've worked toward for many years in my work on um, mass health reform and the ACA of continuing trying to, to cover as many people as we can to work towards healthcare for all and a, a single payer system where everyone has coverage and isn't concerned about affording the coverage that they need. Um, at the state level, it is challenging to get there on our own. So I filed a bill this session that's a mass health buy-in bill that would basically continue to expand mass health and let people buy into that program. So our Medicaid program is, I think, incredible at the state level. It provides really good coverage um, and it is a good option for people. And that is, I think, a path to get to um, Medicare for all or single payer in our state. and I'm hopeful that once once we have a federal partner who's also working on this, that we can continue to get there at the state level. Um, but and then on the flip side of that, I think we we know very well here in Massachusetts that coverage is not everything. We have 97% coverage, I think, for adults and 99% coverage for children in Massachusetts. And at least, least pre-COVID, it's about to drop a, a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point. But we have incredible challenges with people being able to afford and access the care that they need. Um, and we've seen with COVID what the implications of that um, really are. So looking at health equity and the social determinants of health and so many other things that go into health beyond just coverage um, is also the other, I think the other side that we can't lose sight of. And I think with COVID, there's, there's been some good work on that in looking at food access, housing, you know, the environment and how all of those things have impacted our susceptibility to COVID, but there's so much more that we need to do. 
Let me jump into another big picture issue, if I could. You know, issues of racial justice and inequality, very prominent now, maybe uh, more so at any time since the civil rights era of the 60s. But and those issues also intersect with our healthcare system. What do you think should be done to achieve greater equity and, and fairness for minority populations in our state's healthcare system? So a lot of the things that we've talked about, about affordability and access to care, um, it is not true that um, that, that access is, is there for black and brown communities. And that's something that we continually need to address. So we recently passed a black maternal health bill um, in the house, and I believe the Senate passed it as well. Um, but black women have, um, many times more complications from um, giving birth than white women do. Even in Massachusetts, a state with, you know, great hospitals and very good healthcare coverage. Um, the disparities are astounding. And I think it's, you know, past time to really dig into that and figure out how do we um, address those issues and support black and brown women um, in their maternal health. Um, so I'm glad that that is a, an issue that, I, we worked on for many years, but I'm, I'm really glad that it, it passed um, a few weeks ago. And then looking at other issues, like a bill that I filed um, would allow people to get driver's licenses regardless of their documentation status. Um, this is the number one issue of immigrants who live in my community. And I work with an incredible immigrant-led coalition on this issue. And when we talk about why that's important, a number of people say, I need to be able to bring my kid to the doctor. And when it's an emergency, I need to drive. And I don't want to be scared that I'm going to be deported or detained um, when I'm doing that. And um, we know that immigrants, um, both documented and undocumented, have lower rates of healthcare coverage and are less likely to go to the doctor. And a lot of that is because of fear. Um, of the immigration system and of ICE. And so driver's licenses is one way to cut through that and bring more. Let me just, let me just follow up finally with one point um, that I actually recently wrote about in the Commonwealth Magazine article, which is that one can think about price variation, commercial price variation, as contributing to structural racism in a sense of the well-heeled hospitals tend to care for whiter and wealthier populations. Those who get paid less, especially the commercial payment, often uh, care for those greater proportions of patients of color or, you know, in Medicaid. And any thoughts there about addressing some of those institutional inequality reasons, ultimately, uh, you know, getting at the level of the, of the institutions and the resources available there to the populations who are served by the different, different places. So. I think that's a great point and I agree. I mean, in my district, um, the Cambridge Health Alliance, which has run the Somerville Hospital for many years, um, the Cambridge Health Alliance is a, um, a hospital that um, does not command the prices of, um, of some of the um, other academic hospitals. And they do incredible work with their cultural competency, their language access. They are constantly doing outreach in, and partnering in immigrant communities. Um, they really are the go-to place for um, people especially immigrants and people of color in my community. And um, they're, they have a hard time um, <laughs> with their provider price variation and their, um, 
meeting their budget. And that's, um, it's a structural issue that we, we do need to address. And I see it play out right in our neighborhoods. So we are almost out of time. I'd just like to ask one more question if I could. So every, every session, there are literally thousands of bills that are filed and every member files a significant number, yourself included. Is there any bill that you file that you feel is really important and doesn't get enough attention that it really should, that it merits, that you would like to mention? Um, I'm actually gonna go back to the driver's license for immigrants bill, even though with the coalition, we've gotten a good amount of attention. But um, to me, especially right now, I think that um, we need to really be supporting immigrants in the Commonwealth, um, many of whom are essential workers who have gotten us through the pandemic to this point um, through you know, their work in hospitals and grocery stores and, and uh, many other places. And, I, and as far as a health equity issue, um, the mobility is a, is a really basic um, need to address your, your health and be able to both participate in the economy, get a job, and you know, be a, a member of the community where you're not constantly living in fear. So I think um, you know, making sure we're, we're supporting and uplifting immigrants and, and, and passing legislation that does that is really important. Okay, Representative Christine Barber, thank you for joining us this afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be with you and congratulations on your work and your growing role and impact in the legislature. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much. It was a, really a pleasure to be here. And I want to congratulate Paul on your retirement. I didn't realize that. So thank you again. And um, thanks for this podcast. You're very kind. I appreciated your presence today very much. Thank you.